This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 285 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am so excited to bring to you Eric Colby. Now, Eric was a member of the Coast Guard assigned to the port at Manhattan Prior to 9-11, he was actually on shift when 9-11 happened. And I am very, very embarrassed to say I had never heard the Coast Guard side of that day. They ended up evacuating half a million people off the island of Manhattan. So an incredible story in itself. The other side of Eric's story, as you will hear, is later in his career, he found himself deeply in debt and developed some strategies to get himself out of debt, which now he teaches other people. I know personally that financial strain has been a huge stressor in my life, and I hope that some of the information he brings to you will be of benefit to you too. So as I always say, before we get to the interview, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I love reading your feedback, and then leave a rating. Five-star ratings truly do elevate this project and make us more visible to people that are looking for it. And then take social media, email, word of mouth, use it in training, and share these incredible men and women's stories. This is a library of free content that I urge every single one of you to utilize. And all I ask is that you help share so other people can find it too. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Eric Colby. Enjoy. Well, Eric, firstly, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. And I want to say thank you to Skip for connecting us as well. Definitely. Skip, great guy. You know, um, he, he's he's really done a lot to, to 
want to help out first responders and give back. And I'm really happy he introduced us to each other. Me too. This is going to be a great conversation. As people will hear in a little bit, um, a story that I was absolutely amazed that most of us didn't even know about. So we'll get into that in a moment. But where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I'm up in Maine, the wonderful state of Maine, where it's cold and uh, quite snowy still. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Now, were you born there? No, I was actually born in Rhode Island um, and pretty much grew up there until I had gone into the Coast Guard. All right. So I'd love to start at the beginning then. If you could tell me what your parents did and your family dynamic, how many siblings? I have two sisters and two brothers. Um, Of course, my my parents, they got divorced at a young age when I was young. Um, and And my mother raised me. And so I grew up in Cranston, Rhode Island, and uh, my mom, you know, being a single mom, she she was disabled, so she took care of me, and I also took care of her, and I would see my dad on the weekends, and my dad had owned a, a dry cleaners. He was in that business his whole life, um, and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood, like a lot of other kids, I played baseball, soccer, hockey, football, um, you know, all that usual stuff that kids do. And uh, I went to uh, graduate high school and went to college uh, down at University of Tennessee in Chattanooga to major in criminal justice. Um, I had always wanted to go into law enforcement. And but growing up in the ocean state, I always had a love for the ocean. And uh, that actually led me to the Coast Guard. Because I figured, hey, what better way? I could uh, do law enforcement and be on the ocean all at the same time. It was a dream come true. <laughs> now, you mentioned that your mom was from Hungary. Is that right? Yes. Yes. My mother was uh, born in Budapest. And uh, she came. She left Hungary. She actually uh, escaped during the Hungarian Revolution. And, of course, my dad. My dad's Native American. We're Wampanoag Indians. Um, and they met up. Uh, I believe it was in Connecticut uh, many, many years ago, obviously, because uh, my mom passed away in 2010. Um, my dad just celebrated his 86th birthday just this past year, and he's still trucking along. Um, but yeah, my, my mom uh, came here and she was really, really loved the U.S. She would always say, um, I'm an American, I'm not Hungarian. She was so proud to be an American. Brilliant. Well, being from Europe herself and then with your dad having his interesting Native American heritage, were there any things that that in your household from either of those two influences that you found interesting and maybe different from some of the kids that you grew up around? Um, Honestly, no. I mean, you know, of course, my mom did a lot of Hungarian cooking, um, which was really good. Uh, But, you know, my household was just typically like everyone else's. I mean, nothing really different. Grew up in, um, you know, Cranston was, well, it's it's a lot different now than from when I grew up. It was just a suburb of, of, you know, the bigger cities of Providence and stuff like that. But, um, you know, just like any other neighborhood, we all the kids got together. We'd play manhunt at night. We'd play baseball. You know, we'd just hang out and it was just a normal neighborhood. Nothing different than anyone else. Brilliant. It's interesting to hear because I've had you know people that have got um, 
no, immigrant parents, obviously, I'm an immigrant myself, and, and sometimes it has a big effect on a family, and sometimes, like you said, they, they end up becoming, you know, the typical American family, so it's always a good question to ask. Right, um, right. And it's funny you say about Manhunt, because that's the game my son plays all the time. He's always out. <laughs> he's, we're in a community where he's able to be out until the streetlights come on, and it's it's very cool to, to hear people talk about that nostalgically from, you know, our generation's childhood, and now there are these communities around where... It's almost it's almost blooming again. There's a yearn just to be in that community. It is. It's a wonderful thing because a lot, you know, where I live now, it's very rural. You, you really there aren't a lot of kids around, or if you do, you're out in the woods. The kids are hunting and fishing, and because I'm in a very rural area um, up here in Maine, so it's you know the the dynamics up here are very different from what I grew up with. So my kids never really get to experience that stuff. Right. So you mentioned the the journey towards the Coast Guard, but you've been, um, you know, considering law enforcement. Was there a moment where you realized like, okay, I wanted to go for a police officer on the streets, but now I think that the Coast Guard is going to be the best fit for me? Actually, it was. I, um, it, I, when I was younger, I was in the, uh, what did they call it? Law enforcement, law enforcement explorer program, you know, through the Boy Scouts. And I did that at the Warwick Police Department. And then I also had a job there. Um, it was great. I worked uh, in a lot of different uh, departments, divisions within the police department, all the way up to the chief's office. So I got a lot of experience to see the inner workings of the police department. And then I became friends with a lot of the patrol officers. So I'd go out on patrols with them and gained a lot of experience there. And I actually ended up moving down south for, for a little bit. Um, down to North Carolina, and I had uh, I was actually waitering at TGI Fridays, and I met a gentleman there, and uh, it was funny. It was my last table of the night. He had on this shirt that said FBI Training Academy. I thought he was an FBI agent, and uh, so when I asked me, he said, "No, no." He goes, "I'm a lieutenant or in the Winston Salem Police Department." So we had connected, and I had actually gone out for that police department. Um, and when I, after I had made it and was getting ready to go to the academy, I gave up my spot because my daughter, who was living up in Rhode Island at the time, got very ill. So I moved back up to Rhode Island. Um, and then from that point, you know, like I said, for my love of the ocean and law enforcement, that's what led me into the Coast Guard because it would have been a lot easier to bring my family with me in that sense. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned TGI Fridays. When I first moved to America, one of the jobs that I went for was um, TGI's because they had one near where I lived and okay. just like I think it was was that movie Waiting I think it was called Waiting um, oh no it was Office Space that's what it was Office Space with Jennifer Aniston's character and she's told she doesn't have enough flair that was oh, yeah. it, that was exactly what happened to me. I did the personality test, and they told me that my personality test had failed, and I couldn't work to TGI Fridays. <laughs> yeah, because Fridays was all about flair originally when I started there. Yeah, yeah. And then they actually came back to me because when they realized I was English, they're like, well, actually, we have a lot of British people come as tourists. You know, we'd like to offer you one now. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, then tell me about your kind of journey into the Coast Guard then once you've made that decision. Well, it was one of those things, you know, um, my, my my wife and I weren't even married at the time, but we had our, our two kids. And, you know, I sat down and and of course, it's, it's an important decision. We wanted to make it as a couple. 
And uh, so we said, yeah, you know, we both agreed it would be be the best decision for us at the time, you know, um, just having the benefits and whatnot and getting to do something I love. And so I went down to the recruiting office and signed the paperwork. And a few weeks later, I was shipped off to Cape May, New Jersey for an eight week vacation <laughs> in boot camp. So um, and it's funny because I actually enjoyed boot camp. Maybe I was just one of the crazy few, but I I had a lot of good laughs in, in a good time through there. So uh, after that, I got my orders, you know, toward the end of boot camp, and it was to New York City, and I was going to an aids to navigation team. And when I was in there, I had no idea what that meant because I joined the Coast Guard to do law enforcement. And uh, of course, an ant unit is basically you work on lighthouses, buoys, um, you know, keep keep all the ships moving in and out of the harbors and, and things like that. So uh, it wasn't what I signed up for, but I ended up really, really enjoying it. Um, but then being in New York, you ended up doing a bit of law enforcement because a lot of times you get a call, well, uh, you know, with a lot of movies being made in New York, they would want you know, the Coast Guard to go out there and block off the shipping lanes and not have ships sail through while they're filming. And so so we did a bit of security details. And um, of course, I did get to do search and rescue. And uh, it, it, it was quite an experience in New York leading up to that point. Right. Well, this is pre 9-11. So just and, right. and again, I don't mean this as, as a criticism, but obviously that event is going to change the entire landscape of, of security at that particular part of, of the US. Oh, yeah. What what was the training and kind of like the the preparation like back then? What, what was some of the, the target hazards that were imagined at that point? Um, you're asking pre 9-11, right? Yes, pre 9-11. Uh, pre nine eleven, you know, you you did your your patrols, you know, through, through the harbor, and um, you know, even being at an aids and navigation unit, you still while transitioning, working buoys and things like that, you're still looking for people who need or ships who need assistance. Um, being in New York, you know, the you know, you're always lo- looking out for the bridges. Um, I mean, the most common thing we we dealt with are people who would try to jump off bridges committing suicide. So you'd always somewhere along the line, get, you know, pulled along for, for that detail. Um, and we worked hand in hand with the New York city police department. I mean, magnificent and amazing men and women, uh, in, in that department. And, and I gotta say I was honored and fortunate to get to work with them, you know, along with their fire department also, um, but uh, a lot of the security w- was making sure, you know, all the bridges were safe. Right around the bend in, uh, in New Jersey, you had Naval Weapons uh, Station Earl. Um, so, of course, you know, they had their security, but a lot of times we'd have to go out and we'd patrol watching for ships for them and uh, making sure no one was entering their space because, uh, you know, they – I mean, being a weapons station, there was a lot of threats that, that could have happened there also. Um, but pre-9-11, it was very laxed. You know, honestly, it wasn't – nobody was, was really on their toes. People went about their life day to day like it was nothing. Yeah, now, you know, and then to, to, to put it into context, 
areas where there's been an attack before, then there's going to be a heightened element and you know you've got past practice to go on that had there been any kind of attempts via the port pre-9-11 in any sort of terrorist capacity there you know of course there's always that that thought and that worry um but there was nothing that was ever really attempted uh you know like i said the the biggest thing what they ever worry about is if somebody took out one of those bridges then that means the Navy couldn't get into the port or other Coast Guard or cutters without having to go the long way around and up and come down the East River. Um, you know, because the, the Verrazano Bridge is under there is the main passage in and out to the ocean in the quickest way. So there was really, like I said, before that, you know, of course, we had the attack on the World Trade Center in 93, you know, if you remember that for, from land. But nothing, nothing from water. Right now, and then going back to the the suicide that you said, I know there was. Uh, I had Kevin Hines on the show, who's one of the gentlemen that survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And sadly, we the recording was lost through <laughs> some technological issues. Oh no! Um, but we're redoing it. He's supposed to be coming here next month, so we're going to redo it. But in that, he he actually rode with um, the crews that are kind of like you guys. They're on, they're on the river there, and and they have so many suicides through the year. You know, you can imagine the effect of the rescuers in all these high suicide areas that have to pull out, you know, from or or clean up these these people that have ended their lives. And we, and no one really kind of thinks about that element too. That when there's an you know a bridge where lots of people like to jump off, well, that's also hundreds and hundreds of these people over a career that these rescuers are seeing too. Right, right, and yeah, it's. It's certainly not not the most pleasant part of of the job, you know, as you know, and but it is part of the job. And it's one of those things you have to, you know, you do it because you have to. um, But you also have to separate yourself from it also. Yeah, it's just, you know, mentally because, you know, you can't save everybody. That's the hard part as much as you want to. And that's why you pray that. You know, the officers up on top of the bridge can, can prevent the person and talk them out of jumping. But if they can and they do decide to, then it's the, you know, the boat crews on the bottom who are the ones who have to clean it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's just something that, that's not talked about very often. You know, when, when you think of suicides, it's every single time, and I've been on multiple myself, right. that someone does, you know, not only the effect on the family, which is horrendous, which I've seen through my wife because she lost her boyfriend. Um, but is the responders too? You know, every time you know anything is done, there's there's an entire crew of people that has to to mitigate that too. So it's very very sad. It is. It is. And and and, and like I said, you you feel bad. It hurts. You, you know, you can't say it doesn't because we're all human. But at the same time, there's part of you that just has to separate yourself from it because it happens more than you realize. Yeah. Yeah. It does. All right. Well, then, as as you know, we talked about before, and the last time we spoke, there is an element of the you know the day and the following days of nine eleven that, as a responder, I've never even heard really much about this part of um, you know the response, and that is your guys' role, and and obviously the you know the the associated uh, teams that came with you. Uh, following 9-11. So I would love to really take some time from your perspective, the the, the hours leading up to that, and then the days following. Okay. 
Great. All right. So, I mean, as a lot of people remember, uh, September 11, 2001 started off as a beautiful day. You know, in September, it was still warm. And, uh, you know, when everybody was going to work like it was any other normal day and we got to our base. Um, and in the morning, we do our morning muster and uh, uh, Master Chief, he gives out the orders for the day. And for us, it was just going to be a day of prepping the boat to get underway within the next few days. And we were doing maintenance. But uh, something I, I always did every morning, I, you know, growing up in Rhode Island and going to New York City is is a whole different world. It's, it, it is a culture shock, really. And But I always loved to stand at the bow of the boat, and I always looked at the city skyline. I just thought it was so beautiful. And uh, and just that morning, as I happened to be looking, uh, you know, the first plane had hit that, that the, the, the first tower. And I said to myself, wow, that was really a, a, a hor- horrific, tragic accident. But when you think about having three major airports only within miles of of Manhattan, it didn't seem impossible that pilot error or something malfunction or something could have happened that that that, that, that a plane could have flown into to one of the towers. So it just seemed like a, a random accident. And I said to the kid I was working with, I said, hey, Kevin, did, did you see that plane just hit, hit that hit the World Trade Center? And we're watching it. We're watching the smoke and we're watching it burn, you know. And then the second plane, 15 minutes later or so, flew right over our head. And I said, look how low that plane is. And we just watched with our eyes, watched that fly right into the second tower. And then we said, well, there's no way that could have been an accident, two planes. And uh, we ran to the pier, uh, to, to the phone on the pier. We called up to Master Chief to let him know. And then, of course, you know, we you know, we, we knew something was up, so he gave us the order to first lock down the base because, of course, we got to protect our assets first before we could go help others. And uh, and that was the main thing, to, to lock the gates and just completely close down the base so nobody could come in or out. And, uh, and then he called another muster, you know, waiting because we had to wait for orders to see on what uh, the captain of the port wanted to do. Um, but at the time, the captain of the port, Admiral Benison, amazing, amazing man, he um, was ill. And he was actually on his way for a little R&R to get away because he had just had uh, brain surgery. And, uh, of course, he got just literally on the other side of the Verrazano Bridge when, when the attack happened. And he said, I got to go back. And he did. He went back and ran the whole show as sick as he was. And, uh, of course, uh, eventually he gave us the order to, to get underway to go assist. But, of course, before that, we had to prep our boats to, to get ready to do whatever anyone needed us to do. Um, and, you know, of course, that day, I mean, there were just boats and just chaos and helicopters between park police, NYPD, and, um, you know, it was just really absolute chaos within the harbor at the time because you had all the ferry boats and people coming and going to work. Uh, um, you know, there's fast ferries, there's the Staten Island ferries, there's 
smaller ferries that come from other parts of New Jersey. And um, then, of course, it being a nice day, you had pleasure boats out there. And then you had the the car carriers are probably coming in and you had the oil tankers coming in and out. And I mean, you can imagine New York Harbor is extremely, extremely busy at all times. Um, and then you have this attack going on. So, uh, you know, of course, a lot of it was to clear the Harbor um, immediately as soon as we could. So, cause we, we didn't know what was going on. I mean, as you can imagine with that much chaos, he really didn't know, you know, if anything else was going to be attacked. Would they hit the bridges? Would they do, you know, um, would they start blowing up other buildings? I mean, we, we just didn't know. Uh, would they run a ship, right, you know, hijack an oil tanker and run it right up into Manhattan and blow it up? I mean, there's so many different things that that, that, that could happen. So, the, you know, just like with the NYPD on the ground trying to clear everybody away. It was our job to clear that harbor first. Um, so, you know, w w we had that going. And in the meantime, you know, we had, so we, we watched the, the, the first tower come down. And honestly, at that point, it just seemed like this was turning into a really, really bad movie. I was like, did, did, did that just really happen right in front of us? You know, it didn't even seem like it was possible that uh, something like that could happen. Um, and, and, and I can remember as we were sailing, um, that point, I was asked to go up on the bow of the boat and stand lookout because they didn't know um, if there was anything in the water or anything else or anyone who could be approaching our ships or anything like that. Um, and as we were still clearing the harbor, the second tower came down. Um, and at that point, I could remember looking back into the window and, and, and looking at the captain of our boat and just, I think our eyes just met and, 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 and our eyes just blew up like, wow, what is really going on? I mean, is this really happening? Is this like the worst nightmare we've just lived through? And, uh, you know, of course, people were being evacuated across the bridges and, um, and, and, and like anything, you always get somebody who's going to be, you know, who, who thinks they're funny, but by pulling really bad pranks, I'll never forget. Um, somebody left a backpack just at the base of, of one of the bridges. Um, and I can't, to be honest, I can't remember if it exactly if it was the Brooklyn or the Manhattan bridge, but then they said, it said there was a bomb in it. Of course we had to respond to that from being under the bridge and the NYPD had to respond. And of course they already have enough going on with the fire department, trying to clear people out from the ground. And then you get, you know, people who think, it, 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 it's funny to pull pranks in the most horrific times. And of course, now that took assets away to respond to that, which was really uh, crazy. But then we found out it, it was a hoax. You know I mean? That, that there was a backpack there, but there was nothing in it. Um, so, you know, we went back to clearing out uh, the rest of the Harbor. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, all of a sudden, it just seemed so fast. All the police helicopters disappeared. And then you see these two F-15s from Otis flying overhead and just watch those jets just circling 
around and around. Um, after these, a little while after the second tower came down, a lot of people who were on the southern side were, were trapped and they couldn't get out of Manhattan very easily. So the captain of the port, Admiral Bennis, authorized all Coast Guard boats to start taking people away from, from southern Manhattan. My boat being a smaller buoy tender, we became a medical platform. Um, and they had set up a triage center over at Liberty Park and uh, we started transporting wounded people uh, over to Liberty Park. And, you know, just, you know, as I was taking people onto our boat and, of course, seeing them all covered in the, you know, how you saw them all covered in the white debris and, and powdered dust and um, just seeing them cut up and shaken up and crying and, um, I'll never forget one gentleman, uh, he was trying to call his wife and he was shaking so bad. He literally could not dial the numbers on his phone. And of course I helped him do that, but you know, I can't imagine what was really going through his mind. Um, you know, at those moments he, he came out, I forgot which one of the towers, if it was the North or South, he said he was in one of them and, um, but just seeing, you know, you know, just all the debris and, um, people who were hurt and burned and cut up. And of course he just, uh, w w was crying the whole time. But as you can imagine with so many people trying to call, we, he could never get the call out. Just, you know, not, none of the uh, calls would go through. Um, but just to, you know, I, I, I could still see his face and his hands shaking um, so, so, so hard, you know, he was just the fear and, and I think the shock um, that, that, that was going through his mind. And, um, you know, of course that was one load of, of people we took. And then I had a gentleman, um, one of the bigger buoy tenders couldn't get into the, into the dock. So they was transporting people to our boat because it was smaller. Um, and this little kid, he, he must've been about three years old was handed to me screaming for his mother. And I was holding him and I reached out for the other, to the other boat and I grabbed this guy's hand and it was the kid's father. And, uh, so I said, he's calling for his mom is his mom on the boat and whatnot. And he said, no, he goes, um, she was up at, uh, on the top floor of one of the towers and he was on the phone with her. They were supposed to meet, but she said she couldn't get out. And of course, you know, he knew she, she didn't make it, but the whole time, you know, this boy was screaming for his mom. And, you know, I, I, I think about it now, you know, of course the kids, you know, in his early twenties and he grew up without a parent and, um, you know, at that moment, I was thinking, how many other people are there now without parents or brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you know, mothers, fathers who lost? And I'm like, it, it was just uh, the more I kept thinking about how many people were probably lost, I was getting more and more angry, more and more upset. But at the time, you know, as a first responder, your adrenaline's rushing. And you're just in life-saving mode. And 
but I think at that time there, like I mentioned, a part of me was just, uh, what was really torn up, you know, cause especially with, with this little child. And I think that's when it, a lot of it hit me was, was because of this kid. Um, but as we went on through the day, uh, what a lot of people do not realize, you know, cause there wasn't enough coast guard boats. The, the captain of the port authorized other ferry boats and tugboats to actually assist us in taking people to safety. And in nine hours, we rescued 500,000 people. It became the largest evacuation by water in world history. And, uh, it was led by the Coast Guard, and you know, I got to say, I was absolutely proud to have been able to be part of that and to help people and take them to safety. Um, but you know, at the same time, there, there's part of me being a service member that just realized we really failed a lot of people and let a let a lot of people down. You know, we you know, as a nation. Um, someone dropped the ball and we didn't protect everybody the, the, the way we should have. And it really hurt. So, you know, losing a lot of civilians and police and fire and port authority police, you know, none of this really should have happened. I mean, even though it did, I, we always wish we could go back and change things, but, uh, you know, I know everybody did their best that day of with, with what limited resources we, we really had um, to, to be able to help people, uh, you know, it, it, it actually, you know, it's always still hard, you know, you think about it and you keep reliving it and you always ask yourself, well, what could everybody have done differently? And no matter which scenario you play through in your mind, I don't think any of us could have done anything any different. I think we, we did the best. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank, you know, the NYPD and Port Authority and the New York City Fire Department for everything that they did in helping everybody that day. I mean, they were real heroes and those who gave their lives, you know, should never be forgotten. And those who are sick, you know, who worked down um, at the pit and worked at the landfills and now have respiratory problems and cancers and are passing away. I mean, they're real heroes to, to, to go through what they did and not just them, but there was also the rescue dogs. There were other civilians who went in, there were construction crews and, and we can't forget any of those who all volunteered um, to, to, to try to just even find and rescue anybody. I mean, I, we knew the odds were very slim, but, uh, but you know, every, every, everybody did their best. And I got to say, I was proud to be able to work with all of them. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to reiterate what you said. So the the combined rescue effort of, you know, of everyone under the umbrella of the Coast Guard to take half a million people off Manhattan in nine hours. And, and it's sad because, like I said, I'm a first responder. 9-11 is a very powerful event for us, you know, as Americans. But also, in, as you know, in the first responder community, because we had such a huge catastrophic loss of the men and women that responded. Um, and then, you know, as you said, the, the following decades, uh, it's, it's another event that I think that we memorialized probably more so than a lot of people because of the devastating loss of police, fire, EMS, Port Authority. Um, but I'd never heard this side of the story. And, and that's, 
terrible. I should have heard this side of the story. So I want to start by just saying thank you so much, even though I know it's painful to relive it, because this needs to be told. All the people that that chipped in, whether they were military, um, you know, PD in on the on the the port side, and all the civilians that I know must have rolled up their sleeves to get involved as well. They they did. You know, I can't tell you how many people actually would call the Coast Guard base. Saying, hey, can you give us a ride over? You know, there's a group of us or firefighters. You know, we came in from, diff- you know, from different states. Um, you know, uh, of course, New York and Manhattan, they're all islands. So they, they, a lot of people asked for, for rides over because the bridges weren't accessible. Uh, and uh, but it was just amazing how many people came together to volunteer, um, you know, first responders from all different states. Uh, one of my closest friends. Uh, he was a firefighter from West Warwick, Rhode Island. He came and stayed with us and he worked down at ground zero for, for a couple weeks. Um, just so many people from all over coming together, uh, what, what was actually as tragic as it was, what was absolutely amazing how much support and, and, and the love, uh, these people gave to, uh, in, in, in their time and to leave their families to go down there and help. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people talk about, and I, I want to get into this in a minute. Everyone talks about, you know, I missed nine twelve. You know, I think that's, right. that's the sad part is as awful as that event was, there were elements of that where we were more American than we have been in a long time, you know, and then now here we are, you know, basically 20 years later and you look around and you're like, is there that gratitude? Is there that compassion and kindness that we see? Or have we gone back to being the spoiled child that we've been in the past? Right, right. You're so right. Because I've brought that up many times. I said, I'd give anything to go back to nine twelve. as tragic as it was. Everybody, no matter what, they didn't care about, you know, what nationality you were or your skin color. I mean, the, the, the world, I remember seeing on TV, different countries lighting candles for us. And, you know, we we had an amazing support and people here, everybody wanting to pitch in, how can we help? How can we help? What can we do? And it wasn't just in New York. There are people from everywhere, from California, from down Florida. I mean, from the middle of the country, everybody wanted to know how could they help. And, 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 with everything going on today, I, I wish people would look back and say, Hey, what did we lose? You know, let's get back to what that used to be. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Well, you mentioned about the triage being on uh, Liberty Island or Liberty Park, excuse me. So who was actually managing the medical side from your evacuations? Um, from, from our part, you know, of course we have guys who were, uh, who pro- were some, some of them were corpsmen from medical, uh, from what was called activities. That, that's where the captain of port runs his office out of. Um, now they're called sectors from what I understand, but, um, we had some corpsmen. There was a lot of guys who were EMTs and, you know, of course we, we would just, you know, treat people on our way over, you know, the best we could, you know, we're all, and the Coast Guard trained in basic first aid and things like that. Uh, But it was just a matter of just trying to get them to the uh, triage centers, you know, because there were people who were cut up. Some people had burns and 
um, you know, people who are really, really bad, you know, obviously get quicker treatment being on, uh, you know, whatever EMTs or, or fire and rescue who were still around and had a vehicle uh, were taking people to the hospitals. But we just took people with lesser wounds to to the triage centers. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's the thing with those kind of injuries is they could present later, too. So I can't imagine, you know, we prepare for MCIs. Well, the good departments prepare for MCIs. Um, but in most of the cities, you know, I think that we're... You know, we're we're assuming there's going to be tens, maybe hundreds of patients. You know, the, the nightclub shooting that we've seen and the Vegas shooting, but to have was probably more like tens of thousands of patients spread. You know, through through the whole island of Manhattan. I mean, the the magnitude of that and trying to to sift your way through the walking wounded to find the one person that maybe is about to drop dead must. Yeah, you know, that the the pressure on whoever was the the, the medical sector must have been immense. It must have like and and from from the side on land, I don't know who is doing that for from Manhattan. They were just handing us people for you know on our boat and and we would just go. Um, but you can imagine our boats don't move too fast, so um, it wasn't anybody who's extremely critical. I mean, our boats max out at twelve knots. I mean, we're a buoy tender. We're mostly a construction boat, so. Um, you know, it wasn't a matter of people who were, like I mentioned, who were critical. Um, you know, the fire department, police, and everyone took care of them the best they could on land and got them to the hospitals in Manhattan. Right. So then what did the next few days look like for you in the port? Well, that was, um, of course, I remember that night we, when we finally pulled into um back into base we had our evening muster and uh they said okay so now we're going to be you know 24 hours going around the clock because my unit you, you went home every day i was actually at a pretty good unit we worked great hours we weren't really equipped to house an entire base so it was basically uh laying on cots or on the floor or here or there um we didn't have changes of clothes. It was it, it got really difficult for us at our unit. We didn't have um, we had a small kitchen. We didn't have a galley. We didn't have a cook, so we'd had no food either. So for us, it, it was really hard. But we knew what our responsibilities were. We knew our duty. I had the first watch. I'll never forget that evening. So I had been up around the clock. Um, is I had to answer any messages that came across our computers or any calls. Um, cause we still had a responsibility between doing our aids and navigation job. If there was ever search and rescue or anything where we're needed. Um, and then it was still also to secure our base. Uh, cause we had, uh, where I was stationed, we had all the icebreakers and everything else. And, and that's a big responsibility for the coast guard to keep things moving. Now, it being September, it was an ice season, but then there's always that worried, hey, if they attacked Manhattan, what would they attack um, any of the Coast Guard bases? You had Fort Hamilton, which is the Army base in Brooklyn. So everyone was on heightened security. Uh, and then the next few days, I remember the next morning muster, it was, all right, this is going to be your your jobs the next few days. Uh 
we're going to be doing security patrols each day and uh, locking down the harbor. No one's coming in and out. Um, I, for, for some reason, most of my, my details, I had UN duty. So we would tie up with, uh, with one of the New York city police departments that they, they have their own boats. And, uh, it was us in, uh, NYPD guarding the UN, um, and just making sure nobody, no boats or anything ever went near it. Uh, then there was also the, the responsibilities of protecting there were Coast Guard boats protecting the Statue of Liberty, obviously that being a major um, target. The bridges, we didn't want anyone near the bridges, uh, you know, in case if, you know, the Navy or Coast Guard had to get in and out quickly. You know, it's protecting a lot of that harbor, locking it down. There were no ships coming in and out. They didn't allow any container ships, no oil ships, no nothing until we knew what was going on. I mean, because obviously, you know, it wasn't just, uh, on 9-11, the World Trade Center. I mean, we had the Pentagon and 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 the plane that was taken over and crashed in Pennsylvania. I mean, there was so much chaos that day. And the days after, we still didn't know what was a target, what wasn't a target. So you just took everything uh, literally in New York as a target, you know? So you just were keeping your eyes and peeled and watching for every little detail. Um, days following too, we also, uh, I, I, I have to give a huge shout out to Costco. They, they donated pallets and pallets of water and Gatorade and snacks. And, um, they actually called us as a Coast Guard to say, Hey, can you bring this to the firefighters and to the people down at ground zero who are working? And we did, we actually went and picked up several pallets of, of stuff and, brought it over on our boats and brought it to them. Um, and they were so grateful, you know, all the uh, first responders down there. Cause as you can imagine, you know, it was still the, the, those days were still warm and, uh, and those fires were still burning under, under the world trade center and all that dust and debris, you know, as you can imagine, it wasn't pleasant to breathe in and dries out your mouth. And of course, you know, the smartest thing, people did later was wear respirators and masks, but still to have, to be able to uh, give all that stuff and to uh, bring it to them w w was a great thing. You know, and we're so grateful that a lot of stores and companies did donate um, goods and foods and stuff. Cause you know, as you can imagine, you saw the pictures, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers down there working around the clock, morning, noon, night, um, just, just trying to find anybody or anything. And uh, so, so, so we spent a lot of time bringing things down there and down to ground zero. We did our security patrols. Um, we also had boats go up to, uh, I'm trying to remember the nuclear power, I think it was Indian Point nuclear power plant, which was up the Hudson River. And as, as you can imagine, if they ever attacked a nuclear power plant, the devastation that that, that, that really could have occurred. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, we, we've seen disasters already throughout history with, with nuclear power plants. Um, I mean, you can only imagine what would happen with the millions of people in New York if that had happened. So that was another uh, uh, major thing we, we had to protect uh, along the way. And, 
you know, it was a lot of days and nights just patrolling the harbor, protecting the boats. I remember when they brought in the naval uh, medical ship, the USS Comfort, you know, we had to protect that ship also. Um, and then, of course, the Coast Guard brought in their port security units. It was the first time they were ever immobilized in the United States because they're usually deployed overseas protecting harbors. Um, these guys are amazing. Well, not just guys, many and women are absolutely amazing at what they do at protecting these harbors. They have their, their go fast boats and, um, you know, just all the, 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 the weaponry they have and how hard they train. They are, they are the best of the best in protecting, um, assets for, for, from the water. And, uh, you know, they, they were deployed here in New York city. Um, so it was great because a lot of them, uh, they're all reservists mostly. And most of them are, are police officers themselves. So, so, so they, they really understand what it means to be a first responder and not just military also. Um, so it, you know, it, it was great to get to work with them for the first time. And, uh, like I said, it was long days and nights, um, you know, especially the, the, the first two weeks, because it took time for, for the reservists to get mobilized. Uh, the Coast Guard has very minimal assets in New York City. You know, as you can imagine, you have the few icebreakers, the couple buoy tenders. There's a small boat station which does search and rescue between. Um, uh, they're actually on Staten Island. If you go across the way to Sandy Hook, New Jersey, there's another small Coast Guard base which has some. Uh, small boats, which they, they dispatched also. Um, but as you can imagine, it's a lot of water to protect and a lot of coastline to protect um, along with everything else out there. You know, the bridges, like I mentioned, uh, the United Nations. I mean, there's so so many important things that, that are in New York that could have been a target. Well, actually, that, that are a target, not could have been. They actually are. So, um, and as you can imagine, the you know, all the NYPD and, uh, you know, then other federal law enforcement agencies were called in. And um, I can't tell you how many times I worked with the Secret Service. It was, oh, my gosh, it seemed like it was constantly every time President Bush came in. Um, we, we were always uh, with the Secret Service. Uh, they were absolutely amazing to work with. I mean, just how detailed every little thing that, that they do are and of course you can imagine with still a lot of the chaos that, that was going on now you have to protect the president um so of course that got thrown on our plate so like i mentioned our days were really really long but you know i was proud to have done it i would do it all over again um i just wish we could all have had a different outcome for for that yeah uh, we all do now, what, what, after the fact, what were some of the, the lessons learned from the Coast Guard perspective? What were some of the things you changed to, to be more prepared next time? Well, of course, you know, at the time when 9-11 when happened, the Coast Guard was actually under the Department of Transportation at that time. So uh, shortly after that, President Bush created the Department of Homeland Security and transferred us over to Homeland Security. Um, so a lot of things did change and it got really hard because 
what originally happened, the commandant wanted us to do the job of what the Coast Guard did during World War II. And it was a lot of, a lot more, um, how do I want to put it? More tactical, more military stuff, more more prevention, more protection. But at the time, we, if I remember correctly, when I was in, we were actually smaller than the entire United uh, than the entire New York City Police Department. The job of the Coast Guard during World War II, there were two hundred thousand members of the Coast Guard at that time. When I was in, there was only thirty eight thousand of us. Really. Yes, we were we're very very small. Now I think they're up to I believe from what I last heard that I think they're up to about 44,000 members now. But the Coast Guard is very very small branch. Um but we have a lot of responsibility. But when we were transferred over to Homeland Security, a lot of our missions changed, a lot of our um training changed. Uh a lot there was a lot more people getting qualified for more law enforcement and more military. Um, there was, we, of course, like I mentioned, we had the port security units. Then we created uh, anti-terrorist teams. Um, they were called MSSTs, if I remember correctly. That's, that, that was the correct term. Um, but, but they were formed, and they did a lot more tactical training with special forces and and a lot more things like that in case we're ever attacked again. They can be deployed very quickly anywhere within the United States. Um, so a lot of the missions changed, you know, in the sense we started getting newer equipment finally. Uh, you know, coming under Homeland Security, our budget increased a bit. So uh, the Coast Guard had to be more prepared, Um so that was a big thing. I mean, now we have uh, newer cutters. I've been following along. I mean, they're absolutely amazing. A lot of these national, they're called national security cutters. Um, of course, you see a lot recently in the news, they've been doing a lot more drug interdiction, um, a lot more uh, patrols of the coastline to, to start watching out, making sure our, our coastlines are much safer now. Um, you know, because before we didn't have as many assets, like I mentioned. Um, and the ones in the boats that, that, that we did had weren't as well equipped to handle uh, problems that that, that that we came across. Um, now we've been working a lot more interagencies uh, from what I had seen, you know, after working a lot more closely with other law enforcement agencies and federal law enforcement agencies and other military branches. Um, you know, that's one of the, the uh, positive things about the Coast Guard compared to the other branches. We can do both. We can, we're a military branch, but we're also a law enforcement branch. We're the only one who can arrest civilians on the waterfront. Um, that's technically because instead of the Department of Defense, we come under the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and during wartime, the Navy can utilize any of our assets. So, you know, like I said, a lot more, there's a lot more policy changes that, that came along with being in Homeland Security versus uh, Department of Transportation. Um, a lot more of the funding started going towards law enforcement and protecting the, the, the waterways. 
Right. Because it's always interesting to get a perspective of, you know, what do we learn? You know, it's not about finger pointing, obviously, before 9-11, you never thought that two planes would be flown into the world trade. But, you know, it's, it's what do we do in memory of these men and women that we lost to, to make sure that we made ourselves better? That exactly. That's the key. We, you have to learn from from history and our previous mistakes so we don't do them again. Um, we we have to be prepared, you know. I noticed, especially from the time after 9-11, um, we started doing a lot more training, a lot more, uh, you know, security and law enforcement and, and search and rescue and a lot of different types of training and medical training and, uh, you know, just to be better prepared for for. Well, hopefully it never happens again, but if it ever does, we'll be ready. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Coast Guard, my, my father-in-law, actually, I believe, I, I hope I don't get this wrong, I believe he retired as a Master Chief. Um, I think he was there for 20 years. Um, and I know that you guys have a special, like you said, a special operations uh, branch, of which, if I'm not mistaken, have even done incredibly well in some of like the, the Green Beret-style challenges that they do with all the different branches. So tell me about, you know, the special operations um, area and kind of how they're perceived now amongst the other operators of the world. Right. Um, Well, you know, honestly, I've never got to work with them directly. I mean, I know a little bit, um, but I know in a lot of competitions, people think, oh, all the Coast Guard, you know, they don't they're on the water. They don't know anything about. Uh, combat or anything else, but I got to say our snipers are absolutely amazing when it comes down to a lot of the competitions in their class and what they're shooting, they've beat out everybody else. Um, and I mean, of course, everybody trains hard, all branches. Um, but you got to realize our mission is different when it comes to certain things. Like we don't shoot to kill, uh, especially when, you know, cause we're a law enforcement branch. Our job is to arrest people. Uh, so I mean, when you're in a helicopter and you're chasing down, say a go fast boat that's loaded with drugs or, or legals trying to come in, you know, our sniper's job is to shoot out the, the engines of those boats. Well, if you can imagine a boat is bouncing all over the water, you're in a helicopter that's in the air trying to stay steady. And these snipers can, can can just knock out those engines like, I mean, it's mind blowing. I've seen videos. I'm like, I don't even know how they could shoot what, the way they do. It's it's incredible. But we also, it, well, like I mentioned, in every war this country has ever fought, the Coast Guard has been there. Um, we do have tactical teams who who've worked with the Marines and other other branches, um, and. You know, we, we we can do pretty much anything anyone else does, you know, especially what a lot of people don't realize. You can go back to Vietnam. I mean, the Coast Guard had pretty much one of the worst jobs you can ever imagine. And that was going up and down those rivers on these small boats that weren't very well uh, protected. You know, they, they're not built like they are today. And I've heard stories, you know, the rivers, you know, the tides would go down, the boats would get stuck, and these guys would be pinned down until either someone would come save them or the water comes back up and they can sail back out. It's, I, I, I've heard amazing stories of, of what the Coast Guard 
did during Vietnam and um, in, in all branches. Uh, I mean, uh, all wars. Sorry. My great grandfather was uh, in the Coast Guard during World War One. Um, he was in charge of the Coast Guard station on Martha's Vineyard. And, uh, and you know, my, my father would tell me stories of when they would just go out in a rowboat for, for a rescue. You know, I, I mean, a lot of people, you know, look at the Coast Guard and say, hey, you know, they're not the Army, they're not the Marines, they're not the Air Force or the Navy, but we go out and we still do the same job they all do. Um, we train just as hard and, uh, you know, I, I mean, the only difference is, is we actually have more missions. I mean, where the other branches, their primary job is defense. Coast Guard still will lend members for, for defense. We do law enforcement. We do search and rescue. We have ice operations. Um, we, we have the polar icebreakers that go to the Antarctic and, and the poles. And uh, we take scientists. We work with all different federal agencies. I've worked with NOAA. We've dropped weather buoys for them so they can study. Um, I mean, the, the Coast Guard is so multi-mission. I believe when I was again, I believe we had 11 missions that, 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 that we were tasked for, plus aids to navigation. And um, I mean, the, the Coast Guard goes around the clock. It's, it's, it's a very demanding job. And, and I think that's why I liked it so much. Because we were small, you got to do several missions. Like I mentioned, when I went in, I wanted to do, to do law enforcement. I ended up on a buoy tender. Never thought I'd do law enforcement. 9-11 happened, and I worked with more federal agencies and protecting the president. And, um, and, 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 and I get to do my share of law enforcement. So, you know, tasks get thrown at you, but you just got to be ready for them. Um, even after I got hurt, I still begged after the war started. I wanted to go to Iraq. Um, but of course I was injured and they wouldn't send me. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that injury in a second, but the, the, the Coast Guard also is the, the rescue swimmers, isn't it? That's correct. Yep. You'll see those guys. They're, they're amazing. I, I, uh, I was friends with, with a couple of them and just the amount of training and in the, 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 the caliber of physical fitness you have to, 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 to be in to be a rescue swimmer is just mind blowing. I mean, if you can imagine jumping out of a helicopter into the ocean, swimming through big waves or having to rescue people, um, you have to have a lot of endurance. Um, you know, and not only, it, it, you know, they, they don't even just save people in, um, you, you know, in the ocean. I mean, we saw during Hurricane Katrina, uh, the rescue swimmers being lowered down to rooftops to help people. They'll be lowered down to boats to help people. You know, if someone's on a boat and they're having a heart attack, you know, these guys just get lowered down to the deck. And of course they have to, you know, be able to assess any medical uh, injuries or, or, or whatever the situation is. I mean, they're all, to, they're also uh, tasked with, with uh, multiple, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Assignments. Yeah, multiple assignments. You know, they they they, they have to be ready for for anything. Um, 
so I mean, but the rescue swimmers are absolutely amazing. You know, I mean, uh, just the amount of swimming those guys do day in and day out just to, to keep up their qualifications, um, you know, and, you know, you have to just be extremely physically fit to do that. And, and a little crazy too, to jump into <laughs> an ocean in the middle of a hurricane to rescue someone on a boat. I'm like, go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of these rescues are not occurring in the, the calm waters of the Caribbean. <laughs> no, 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 they're not, you know. It's it's always when someone's in trouble in the middle of a storm, and um. But you've also seen them. We've also seen out on the west coast. You know, people get lost uh, in the mountains, and I've seen them pull people out of mountains. They'll they'll lower these rescue swimmers down and rescue people who are trapped. Um, they have to be prepared for for anything. It's amazing. I want to talk about one more kind of moment for the the coast guard, and then we'll transition to your you know your your journey out of the Coast Guard, but um, that video that surfaced probably six months ago where the Coastie jumps onto the submarine, the drug oh, runner. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a moment from your perspective. Um, I thought that, you know, of course, that that was exciting. And, of course, that really brought the Coast Guard to to, to, to the forefront of, 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 the, of the drug war there. You know, um, narco subs are a really big thing on how these – uh, you know, drug cartels are trying to bring drugs into our country. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, the, I mean, the, 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 the ocean's huge. And when you're looking for a tiny little boat or now these subs, which are um, really sitting low to the water, almost underwater, it's so hard to find them. And, uh, you know, of course, when they found that one and, you know, these guys in these subs, they don't want to be caught. They don't want to go to jail, but they weren't going to stop. But, of course, you know, you saw that video of that coast. He jumped right on and he's banging on the hatch. Um, it, it, it was quite exciting, you know, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it's, it, it's still a dangerous job. You're jumping from one moving vessel to another. Yeah, and um, when when the uh, the door opened, like, is there going to be a, a rifle barrel staring at you as well? Exactly. You don't know. I mean, because like you mentioned, uh, well, like I mentioned, these people they they, they don't want to be caught. They'll fight back if they have to, and um, but at the same time, you know, you know, what, when they're surrounded by but but by, by boats like that, they know there's really not much else that they can do. I mean. You know, these coasties are trained on how to properly uh, enter, you know, and stop a vessel. And, um, and you know, and, and, and I give them a lot of a, a lot of props and kudos to them because it, it's not an easy job. They train hard every day because um, they want to go home to their families, too. Yeah, no, it was it was admirable and definitely one of those, you know, brass balls moment caught on camera. <laughs> Yeah, and it was really cool, you know, the you know, people get to see, hey, this is what the Coast Guard does, you know. Yeah. Now just before we were recording, we talked about, you know, some of the the other things that I've covered in this this podcast and one is the quote unquote drug war. And um, you know, one of the elements I talk about is how it's clearly unsuccessful. You know, we've got more addicts right. than ever, our prisons are, you know, overflowing now. Um, but the other thing is the effect that has on the other group of people that I adore, which is, you know, police and fire and medics and, and you know, the uh, the military. And again, 
you've got you talking earlier about resources being taken away for that backpack on the bridge well you've got these men and women whose primary goal is to protect our country but yet again because of this drug war that we have going on we're drawing those resources to chase you know these dipshits around the ocean that are trying to bring you know these poisons into our country and to me and again I'm I'm not trying to load the question from from your answer but to me when we have Switzerland, Portugal, some of these other nations that have decriminalized drug use and literally cut the head off the snake just by getting rid of the, the addicts, you know, funneling them into to, um, recovery programs and psychological counseling instead of throwing them in prison. Um, I wonder what effect that would have also on the Coast Guard and, and how many more resources we could apply to actually protecting our shores from threats instead of things like drugs. I, I completely agree. I've said it for a long time. When I looked at the success rate of what's happened in Portugal, I've always been for it. You know, what Portugal did, bring that here. And I think that would help a lot more people. You know, I mean, because it, it is sad. You know, there's too many people who are dying unnecessarily every day due to drugs. And if we can help them instead of just locking them up and throwing them in prison, and then they serve that time and they come back out and then they're doing the same thing over and over again without getting the proper help or rehabilitation. We're failing. We're completely failing all these people. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, and for the Coast Guard, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you know, obviously if we didn't have a war on drugs, then it wouldn't be such a, you know, we can allocate resources to the things that really need help. Um. But unfortunately, you know, we look at uh, addicts instead of as a illness, we're looking at them as criminals. Yeah. Men, many and, of whom are men and women that served. Exactly. I, a lot of them. Um, you know, a matter of fact, I have friends who are, you know, who are veterans and, and, and made bad choices and ended up as addicts. You know, some of them clean themselves up and I'm, I'm so proud of them. But some of them really struggled and couldn't. Um, It's, you know, drugs, I mean, it's so bad. And we really need to do something to help these people and treat them like humans and not criminals. That's the problem, you know. Yeah. And and like you mentioned, what, what they're doing in Europe, it's working. And I don't know why we can't do that here. Yeah, I, I think there's no reason why we can't. Is it going to be overnight success? Of course not. You know, we've got a huge nation you know, that's definitely programmed a certain way. But you know, I think that's what's the beautiful thing about conversations like this. You know, that are, that can circumnavigate the restrictions of you know whoever owns the news network is that you know to get people Google in it. Look at look at Switzerland. Right. Look at Portugal. You know, look at some of these other even the states where they've legalized you know marijuana. I mean, I remember watching. I've talked about this a lot watching episodes of cops when I was younger and these, you know, like police chases and then this foot pursuits and they finally take them down. Oh, we found a spliff. You know, we found they had, they had marijuana on them. Now, yeah. now look at how ridiculous that is. And those men and women could have been actually chasing, you know, real criminals. You know? And exactly. I say that because, yeah, I mean, obviously if they're violent, whatever, but there is so much crime attached to the way that we view addiction and you want to get the shit bags off the streets, just like we did with prohibition with alcohol. You, you 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 know make it legal where now your dealer is actually the person in the pharmacy who is doing it the right way and slowly weaning these addicts off rather than empowering these thugs that are then creating such a bloodbath 
that you know i mean no one's being helped by this we're just losing people and now the border of mexico and america is literally like some horror movie day in day out right and and not only that but i saw the statistics you know of course when you have people who are sharing dirty needles you look at what happened in portugal and switzerland you know all those diseases were, were being reduced also yes yes exactly you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, I mean, you know, and even where I live up here in Maine, there, there's a big problem with drugs and you can walk through Portland and I've seen needles on the ground and it's like, oh man, why, you know? And I mean, I, I just always worry about what, what if a little kid picks up this needle or something? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that they'll do in these nations is they have areas, you know, for the addicts that despite all these other avenues are still using that all right well then come into this clinic we'll we'll watch you you use you get your hit and then and then you leave all those needles in there and then and then you leave and then there's you know disposal areas and needle exchange programs and the goal is to address the mental health side i mean these it doesn't matter what the addiction is we have alcohol which is legal we have drugs which are illegal gambling porn i think you know social media is one of the new addiction elements now but right. you're not going to address the mental health issue by just locking up the people who are symptomatic. Right. You know, it's funny. I was watching, and uh, I think it was on 60 Minutes, there was these two police officers, they were talking, and they said, you know, the problem is, is they're using jails as mental institutions. They, and they were saying the majority of people aren't even criminals in there. They have mental health problems. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then and again, this is a, a sweeping generalization but i've heard especially here in florida that the programs that are addressing mental health in some of these prisons are actually being cut as well so not only are you locking them up now you're taking away the one resource that may have actually made a difference right so yeah well thank you for that perspective i really i i obviously i have an opinion on this side you know i i truly believe having been to portugal having sat down with jao gulao the actual individual that spearheaded it the oh, list, wow. listening to my pet my mom and my brother who've lived in portugal for almost 20 years now i've seen it i've heard the stories before i've seen it you know after i've heard his journey so the problem is most people don't know about it and it's fantastic that that you do but I, it's like one of these things where the the, the war on drugs is 100 years old Okay, that, that's a huge study in the scientific world. We know it's not fucking working, so let's educate the masses on some other options and get the people asking the questions, why are we not trying these other, other routes? I agree. Right, well then, I'd love to, to transverse then, transverse, that's the wrong word, transition, excuse me, um, to your journey out of the military. So you mentioned your injury before, so tell me about that. I was, um, of course, like I mentioned, I worked on a buoy tender and I happened to be uh, hooking up a buoy and the crane operator accidentally hit the lever and dropped the counterweight on my back. My back got broken and um, that was it. You know, the Coast Guard said, you're not seaworthy anymore. Your career is done. Well, I fought and fought because I loved what I did. Um the hard part it was I knew I wasn't seaworthy anymore either. Every time a boat would come up off a wake and I'd come down the compression on my spine, I'd almost pass out from the pain. It was so excruciating. Um, so I get transferred to office jobs. Um, 
but I still fought because I still felt like I'm part of the Coast Guard, even though I'm stuck in the office. I'm still doing my part to help out my, my fellow shipmates. But after time, they said, all right, enough's enough. You're done. And they let me go. Um, so I was separated from the Coast Guard. It happened pretty quick because I fought for so long. Um, that, 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 that they literally only gave me a couple weeks when I found out after I finally lost my final appeal. And uh, we had to pack up quickly, clean up our housing, and we had nowhere to go. We didn't have, um, you know, an apartment or we didn't have the savings. We didn't have anything. So uh, we ended up homeless. My wife, myself, and at the time I had two kids. And, uh, you know, for the first couple, you know, for a first like week or two, we were bouncing around from different friends on their couches and this and that. And then we uh, had really nowhere to go. So we moved, we made our way up to Maine because um, I wanted away from the city. I just, I, I, I was still dealing with 9-11. Um, I still had a hard time coping. I was also a, di- I became diabetic. I got really sick. Um, so when the Coast Guard separated me, the doc didn't give me any, any insulin, nothing. And one night I just, my sugar was up over a thousand. I just collapsed on the street and ended up, uh, someone found me and, and I ended up in the hospital. Um, and I remember when I woke up the next day, I was looking up at the ceiling and I just said, God, please, you know, you know, it's my responsibility to take care of my wife and kids. Don't take me now, please, because I, I, I need to take care of them first. And, uh, of course, they, they got my sugar under control. I left the hospital, and I ended up in the library of all places. And I said, well, this is actually the greatest learning institution in the world. There's a book on everything you can ever imagine in a library. So I started reading books on business, and what could I do just to make a little bit of money? Um. Because after being separate from the Coast Guard, I didn't know what to do. I I was struggling just to get through each day because I wasn't feeling well. Um, and uh, we ended up uh, – I actually, it's funny. I heard about something I read about was called e-commerce. And so I started going around the streets finding little things I can tinker with. And I put it together, fixed it up, and I would go to the library and put it on eBay. And then I started selling things on eBay. It's kind of funny. That's how I started making a little bit of money. And then my wife was learning how, you know, we, we, we still had to buy food and things like that with what little bit of money we have, but how not to pay full price for things. And we started finding discounts and this and that. And this was long before a lot of the apps that, that, that were around today. And then we started over time, we didn't even realize all these concepts eventually became a business my wife and I started called Strive and Thrive Life. Because we figured you got to strive, thrive, and live life. Because, you know, one thing I've always said after 9-11 was life is way too short. I mean, there's not a day that, 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 that goes by I don't tell my wife and kids I love them. Every morning and every afternoon when they come home. I just tell them, I give them a hug. I love you. Cause you just never know when that last moment's going to be. And, uh, 
you know, because I watched almost 3,000 people on 9-11 just, you know, they weren't going home to their families. So that became something that was so important to me. And that's why we came up with the concept of strive, strive and thrive life too. You know, cause life is too short. Like I mentioned. Um, and I've always lived a life of service and giving back and wanting to help other people. And I know how expensive it is today to live. Um, you know, we, my wife and I, we have four kids, our youngest two are, are autistic. So, so, so life in our family is in our dynamics are, are very hard, but, I teach my kids it's always about helping other people and, and giving back to others because I, I always tell them that's what's going to make a positive impact in this world. I said, we, you know, we can go out and, and make a fortune. But I said, it doesn't matter unless we're doing something for someone else. And, uh, and, and, and I always tell them, you know, even, even tell a stranger you love them. I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It'll shock them because <laughs> I've done that many times. They, they look at you kind of strange. But then I explained to him, I said, listen, you don't even know what, when your last moment's going to be. I said, I've seen it too many times. And James, I'm sure you have too as a first responder, you know, responding to people. You know, you, you just never know. And that's why it's so important to, to, to always just, uh, you know, to, to care for, for other people. I mean, obviously you got to take care of yourself, but also, you know, be there for others. You know, especially today with because um, in my time, even after 9-11, I had a hard time. Um, I, I, I mean, a lot of people don't know. I went through four suicide attempts. I got so depressed, um, a lot of guilt, a lot of blame. But uh, it was over time when I was in the VA hospital. <laughs> it's funny. I had this one doctor. He was interning from England, of all places. Yes. I'll never forget. He goes, are you a Beatles fan? And I said, yeah. I said, I love the Beatles. And he looked at me, he says, then let it be. And at, at that point, it was like, whoa, my, it was like mind blown. It clicked. I'm like, because it was something I couldn't control every day of my life up to my suicide attempts. I was trying to figure out how I could have justified 9-11. And I I, I couldn't. And he says, you got to let it be. He says, you can't change something that's already happened. And that, and that was my problem. I was always trying to figure out a way to fix it. And that's, I've always been a problem solver and always wanting to help people and, and help them. And, um, nine 11 was the one thing in life. I couldn't, I, I couldn't come up with, with, with an answer to. And that's when he said, you got to just let it be. And I was like, okay. And, and I did. And, and after that, I realized I had self-worth. And, um, and that's when Tina and I realized what we were doing by helping people and teaching them how to get ahead. Because what we do is we teach people how to get savings, how not to pay full price for things. But one of the biggest problems in America is debt. So we teach people, okay, you, you, you have this debt. But you're paying X amount of dollars. Well, we're going to save you money on this, but you're going to take that savings and apply it towards your debt. Because we tell everyone, close your eyes and just imagine what your life would be like if you had no debt. If you didn't have to worry about collection agents calling or where you're going to get money for, for, for your utility bills. Life would be so much better in America if we weren't in debt, but we're taught you have to borrow all the time. So we, 
we we try to teach the opposite concepts of, of, of what you were taught because honestly, if our country wasn't trillions of dollars in debt, we this nation would be so much further ahead. But because we're a, we're a borrowing nation, uh, Americans are struggling. So so we started that, and a friend of mine who's a comedian approached me and asked me because he was always about giving back. He was actually one of my first business partners years ago, even before I went in the service. And um, he always taught me, he says, life is about helping others. And he says, people are going to screw you over, but he says, karma will catch up to them. He says, keep giving, giving, giving. And I look at him now and how successful he is. He started a company called Funny for Funds. And of course, he knows I'm the business type person. So he said, hey, listen, you want to run the Portland main branch of Funny for Funds? And we do fundraising with a comedy show kicker. And it's been so successful. In five years, we raised over $5 million for different organizations and people who may have medical expenses or little leagues or things like that. And it's always about giving back and helping others. And, uh, you know, and it's funny because my friend Bill, he knew I would jump all over because being the type of person, being in the Coast Guard, always wanted to help people. Um, and, and he said, hey, he goes, I, he goes, I know this would be a perfect fit for, for you and Tina. So now we're running these two companies and being able to help people and make a difference. And because, uh, you know, right now w- with my back being the way it is, um, I mean, I have some days I physically can't get out of bed. The pain is so bad. Um, and that's why I'm really blessed and fortunate to be able to work at home. Um, because also, like I mentioned, with having two autistic children, um, I get a call from the school a lot of times um, because my daughter might be having a meltdown. She's overstimulated or my son. So then sometimes I have to go down to the school and, and help out. So I'm really fortunate and blessed in that sense that I'm able to to be there for, for my kids because, um, I mean, you know, like a lot of any parent, you know, you, your kids are your world and, and they've been my best friends, you know, um, along with my wife and I mean, we've been through our struggles and, uh, you know, of course, being a first responder and, and a veteran, you know, one of the big things I want to help out with uh, as my business grows is, is, you know, suicide awareness for, for a lot of first responders and, and veterans. I mean, we hear about it all the time on how many are, are, are committing suicide. I mean, our jobs are so stressful. And, and what you see, it's, it's, it's really hard. I even had somebody, this was about three or four years ago. I, I was having a tough time and they're like, well, 9-11 was so long ago. Why don't you just get over it? And I'm like, we mean get over I, I can't. I, if I could, I wouldn't be feeling the way I'm feeling right now. You know, and, you know, for people who aren't there, who, who aren't a first responder, have a hard time understanding this. Um, and, and and they really can't wrap their head around what it's like to be a fireman or a paramedic or a police officer or, or, or in the military. It's, you, you see things that, 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 that the average person doesn't see. And that's why, like, I love movies. One of my hobbies is going to movies, but every time you see these action movies and people all bleeding and stuff, I'm like, you have to laugh because it doesn't even look like that in real life. You know, it's, you know how it is. I'm like, okay, that's pretty entertaining, you know? 
Um, but people think like, okay, they see it in the movie and it's not a big deal. I'm like, well, when you see it in real life, this is a real human being. This is someone's child, someone's mom or dad or something. It, it hurts. Well, like I mentioned, you try to separate yourself from it, but being a human being, you're still compassionate and you, it still takes a toll on you, especially day after day, you know, when, when you're doing this. And that's why a lot of people don't realize why first responders can be really grumpy at times because you wish it could get better, but it just, it doesn't, you know, especially like we just talked about the, the whole war on drugs. Every time you go in and you try to help someone who's an addict, they're overdosing and there's their child or something. It's like, why, why, what, why are you doing this? You know, it hurts. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as well from what you were talking about with um, strive and thrive you've got these first responders, you know, you've got the things that we see, you've got the the shift work, which, you know, is undoubtedly a big contributor to, to ill health, mental and physical. But then you've got the the financial element. And I can say, I'll, I'll be transparent now. I got divorced, uh, what was it, nine years ago now? Um, and, you know, I basically ended up losing my home. I had to declare bankruptcy. Um, so being a single dad, going through divorce and then having the financial strain of working, you know, all hours God sent and still not be able to make ends meet. Um, yeah, I mean, that's another another layer of bricks on, on that responder's shoulders and, and definitely another contributor to, sadly, the decision that some of these men and women make to end their life. You're right. And what people don't realize is financial stress is actually one of the leading causes of illness. I mean, when you're under that kind of stress, you, 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 your body gives in at point. It gets sick. And yes, there are some people who just don't care and don't pay their bills. But I know a lot of people who mentally just really broke down because, you know, they can't afford to feed their kids. Um, who's, you know, the... the, the they may have gotten sick already, and now they've got an overwhelming amount of medical bills or their college loans. They can't afford to pay them. You know, so, so we help when we show people how to free up money because it, it's hard. Having that kind of stress in your life, when there are other problems you've got to cope with, uh, you know, it, it's hard. And, and, and like you mentioned there, I have been people who committed suicide over, over their finances. Um, and we don't want to see that happen to anybody. And, and, and that's why we, we want to help people. And that's why we show them how to lower their bills without really having to change too much. Because um, what people don't realize is these companies are overcharging Americans by, uh, for, for their services by over $60 billion a year. This is your money. So we show you how to get that back. And, uh, it, yeah, you know, because, you know, life is expensive. People are living paycheck to paycheck already. And, and we need to start doing better in this country. Yeah. And once you're stuck in that spiral. So my thing wasn't, again, it wasn't overspending on myself. I mean, you know, it was just, it just you know, our mortgage was certain, a certain way. And initially it was supposed to be a two-income household. Then that became one income household, but once you're in that that vicious circle with the with the um, the fees and the overage charges and falling behind, I mean it is you're definitely set up for failure. And it's not a poor me, you know. We declared bankruptcy, wiped the slate clean, started again. You know, I'm remarried, we've got two incomes. It's it's a completely different ballgame. My wife is an amazing woman with our finances, but 
you know, I've been there, you know, circling the drain and, and uh, it, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. And again, you talk about guilt, the guilt of feeling like you're not able to support your family is a horrendous weight to feel. Right. Trust me, that, that, that was exactly how I felt when we, we ended up homeless, you know. Um, I, bl- I blame myself, but my wife said, you got hurt. It wasn't your fault, but you, you still have that in the back of your head saying, I should have done better. I should have done something else. And now here I am in the hospital almost dying. You know, I was like, I can't leave this world like this. You know, I'm not leaving my family on the streets. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant, though. So, so you, not only were you able to find a way to bring income in, but you're also finding a way of taking that knowledge and, and then teaching other people so they could have the same benefits. Exactly. You know, because it, it, it's a matter of, like I said, about paying it forward. You know, I always say in my videos for, for, for our company, for Strive and Thrive Life, um, I always say this, the, the, the Strive and Thrive Life way is to pay it forward to someone else. Share knowledge, share information, you know, because when you, you know, you, you always have to stay open minded and you've got to keep learning in life. And I got to say, that's one of the lessons my, my, my grandmother taught me before she passed away. Um, she passed away at the age of 94, but she was reading books three days up until the day she, she died. And she said to me, you know, this was even, you know probably a few months before she passed away. She said, Eric, the day you stop learning is the day you become a failure in life. And I'm like, well, that's very true. Cause if you don't keep learning, you, you even in your jobs, you have to stay competitive because in today's world of technology, if a robot or a machine can replace you, it's going to. So you've got to stay knowledgeable in your field. So you don't get replaced. Well, and especially for our professions, that's what I struggle with understanding is why you wouldn't want to keep learning if you are in a profession where lives are at stake. And, you know, there's 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 people that are on a job that just have no business being on the job. And there's many of them that have kind of, you know, really been beaten down by the environment they're in, whether it is the, the sleep, the shifts, the understaffing, the, you know, organizational stress. But that's it. You know, you want to be an effective responder. You have to keep training, especially the fire service. You know, it, outside of, of New York, where we're firefighters and EMTs and paramedics, when you when you make a list of all the things that we're responsible for, all the potential calls that you could go on, I mean, you know, the, one of my paramedic instructors said it best about paramedic school. He's like, it's 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 like a slow freight train. You can you can keep up with it walking. So if you're walking ahead of it and you keep walking, you'll be fine. He said, but if you ever stop to tie up your, tie your shoelace, you're fucked. And he didn't use that word. <laughs> but, you know, the, that was it. And that's, that's absolutely true. You don't have to train 18 hours a day. But if you haven't learned something by the time you lay your head on the pillow, then shame on you. Right, right. No, I, I completely agree, you know. And, and it's hard because a lot of times you have to make do with minimal, um, you know, equipment and assets you know i looked at our fire department like i said i'm in a rural area but they actually shut down our fire department for a little while because all our equipment was so old and beat up they said it's not even up to standard and they wouldn't let anybody use it you know because the town didn't even have the funding so they had to start borrowing from other towns and uh you know things like this should never ever be for any first responder 
you know, all police, fire, you know, EMT should have the proper equipment to do their jobs in a safe, efficient manner. And budget should never, ever be in question when it comes to that. Yeah, and I always struggle with that. People talk about, well, you know, it's taxpayers' money. We only have so much. And I'm like, all right, well, where I've lived pretty much my entire time in America, which is now 17 years, or, you know, East Coast, West Coast, you know, nicer areas, some some much poorer areas, there's nothing but SUVs, minivans, trucks. These are all like tens of thousands of dollars cars. And you're telling me that people can't, as a nation, put in another cent or two to support their police, fire, schools, to get them up to where they need to be? There, there's no doubt. I mean, especially when they're driving expensive vehicles, Lincolns or Mercedes. I mean, seriously, I mean, why, why not be able to give back? You know, I even look at our school, somebody who's running for one of the uh, uh, town official positions here came knocking on my door. I said, listen, our school's overcrowded. There's plenty of land. Why aren't we building an addition onto the building? You know, you know, we, we, we have to be able to, to, I mean, give back to, to, to law enforcement and fire and EMS and the schools. And, you know, even if our taxes went up an extra, I don't know, hundred bucks a year, who cares? You know, you add all that up, it'll still help out. You know, let, you know, we need to make a difference and, uh, and, and people shouldn't be, be that greedy. Now, 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 like I mentioned, a lot of people are struggling, but at the same time, if they're willing just to go into debt over something they don't need, you know, let's work on things we, we, we do need, you know, things that will make a difference. And that's what I'm all for. I don't have a problem paying extra to, to, to fund our fire department. Like I said, I mean, there's no reason our fire department should have ever been shut down. You know, not realizing their equipment was so outdated and so old. And when they did their inspection, I mean, come on. I mean, what, what, what would have happened in that time when the fire department was shut down if there was a fire? Yeah, after the fact, you probably would have got a whole bunch of new equipment. But, well, it's, but it's too late by then because people have died. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, but 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 then they still end up having to borrow equipment to, to be compliant. You know, because no, I get it. I'm in a rural area. It's all volunteer. I mean, we have a paid fire chief and one paid paramedic, and they only work Monday through Friday. And because, uh, like I said, I mean, there there's not much out where I am. Um, but still, you know, at times, I mean, because I, like I said, I have my medical issues. I've, I've fallen down many times, um, and other towns have had to respond because, you know, we, we don't even have enough volunteers in our department. To be honest with you, there's signs up everywhere. We need volunteers, but nobody. Of course, there's a lot of older people, but there's not enough younger people willing to step up. Yeah, I just think, I mean, in 2020, and maybe I'm extremely naive. Yeah, you know, that should be the primary, you know, um, the priority, you know, the safety of your nation. And so if there's areas, of course, you know, an urban area is going to be able to staff um, fire departments and police vehicles a lot more easier than um, than a rural area. But as a nation, I still find it bizarre that we have volunteers in 2020, that, that as, a, as, a, as a country, we don't have the funds 
to provide coverage wherever you are. And obviously, there's the cities and counties that come into that. But where there are areas where, you know, there aren't enough residents in that town to really do it, that we don't have some sort of supplementation to provide, like you said, the, the minimum, at least what's re- provided, excuse me, what's required to provide an immediate response until that secondary larger city or county is able to get to where you are. Right, right. And, and it is sad. I mean, because, you know, our nation is wealthy, but we're squandering money on things that, that aren't necessary instead of putting it into education and, and protecting ourselves and, and doing better as a nation. Yeah. All right. Well, I'd, I'd love to transition to some closing questions. Um, sure. The first question I always like to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, actually, <laughs> there is. And I'm trying to actually, if you give me one second, I got my bookshelf right in front of me. It's one of my favorites about the Coast Guard. It's actually called Rogue Wave. It's the U.S. Coast Guard on and after 9-11. Um, and it's by Chief Petty Officer P.J. Kepalati. And it was a really good book about everything about what the Coast Guard did on and after 9-11. Excellent. Well, I haven't heard of that one. i got to make sure my, uh, my father-in-law has, uh, has read that. If he hasn't, I'll have to buy it for him too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great book, um, you know, since, since we're on this topic here. So, you know, I always like to promote that one because a lot of people ask, well, what did the Coast Guard do? You know, we didn't know the Coast Guard was there. What about a movie? I got to say one of my favorites that I've always liked to to watch, it was called The Finest Hours. Um, it was a, it would, took place in the 50s, um, and it was about uh, one of these big uh, container ships got split in two during a storm. And... Uh, and they sent out a couple of Coast Guardmen out of Chatham, Massachusetts, to go rescue them. But now you can imagine the the motor lifeboats back then um, were just really just wood boats, and and these guys went out there. Their their uh, antenna and radar got just tore off. They went out into the storm blind, and they pretty much weren't even expected to come back. They didn't even know where the ship was. They actually came across it and found it, and they rescued, um, I believe it was about 30 sailors from that ship in the freezing cold water on this little rinky-dink boat, and uh, and they actually came back alive. Um, it was an amazing movie of true heroism and um, sacrifice, because, like I said, when they when they were sent out, they weren't even expected to come back, but it was their duty to. Brilliant. Well, I remember seeing that um, the trailers come out, but I haven't actually seen that yet. So I got to put that to the top of my list. Definitely check it out. It, it was absolutely an amazing, amazing movie. As a matter of fact, the last Coast Guardman who was on that, I believe, just passed away in 2019. Oh, really? That's a shame. Yeah. Yes. Right. Well, then, same question, but a documentary. You know, because there's so many different 9-11 documentaries, which I've watched. And I honestly don't know the titles to any of them. 
Okay, well, I know the one that, that I thought was, was amazing was the one by the two French brothers. Nine- that's the one I, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of, but I don't know the name of it. It's actually called 9-11. That was the title. And I'm trying. Oh, what? It was just 9 Wow, that was a very generic title. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm working on um, trying to get the two brothers on uh, on the show, but they are, they are ghosts. So I just got a text the other day from someone from the FDNY that's going to try and they connect me an with someone. They did amazing, amazing job. With, with, with that documentary they not only did um 9-11 but they also did one on the the Bataclan shooting in paris a few years ago um it was oh. a three three part i think it was netflix special and it was heartbreaking but so so well done i didn't even know about that one yes i highly recommend you look that up if, i mean their 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 first one was obviously almost accidental they were following a rookie in fdny when when the towers were hit but the second one is all all the men and women that were kind of involved that survived um, and just all the different perspectives in French, but it's all subtitles, but uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's so, so sad. And it's called, I'm blanking on it now, whatever day that was, that's the title of the the special. Okay. I'll look that up. All right. So the next question, what do you do these days to decompress? Ah, my... My getaway is to get on my Harley and do wind therapy when the weather's nice. Nice. I love to ride that. And I started um, something I found very therapeutic. I just started learning to play guitar. Oh, are you? Yes. So I'm, uh, I just picked that up and um, I found it to be very relaxing and kind of puts my mind at ease. Um. Because, of course, back in the day when I was younger, I used to do a lot of martial arts. But, of course, now with my body all broken up, I really can't anymore. So, um, my and, – and, and, and just goofing off with, with my kids. Um, I have so much fun with them. I mean, they're like my best friends too. Uh, you know, we I love to go to concerts. Um, a matter of fact, uh, my youngest daughter is a big Kiss fan, so we're actually going in two weeks to see Kiss. Oh, really? Yes. That was her Christmas present. And my oldest daughter, in the end of August, we're going to the stadium tour of Motley Crue, Def Leppard, and Poison. Oh, that'd so be a good her, one. Her Christmas present. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love doing fun things like that with my kids and going to movies because that's one of my big hobbies. I'm a big nerd. I love Star Wars. Um, my whole office is all Star Wars, and uh, yeah, it, it that is my my, my my getaways. You know, my family, my Harley, and playing guitar. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a beautiful place to ride your bike, and it's it's funny how people. And I'm not funny, like ridiculous or anything, but people in say LA, you know, they get in their bike and then they get stuck in I-5 traffic, you know, not right. quite as liberating as riding around the countryside in, uh, in certain areas of America. I just wish our season was a little bit longer, you know, it seems like as soon as I, I get it out, you know, we got a few months and then I'm parking it for the winter again. Yeah. It's like, it's like my sweatshirts in Florida. They get about two, <laughs> two months use and <laughs> I never see them again. <laughs> All right, well, um, let's make sure that we find out where people can find you online. So what about uh, Strive and Thrive? Actually, that is, we do everything from our Facebook page. So if you type in Eric and Tina Colby, or if you type in 
um, facebook.com, I think was a backslash strive and thrive life. You can find us that way. Okay, perfect. And same thing for, for funny for funds. It's the same thing too. Brilliant. Fantastic. So I'm sure people listening will probably want to you know, look at that and, and get some ideas as far as their own finances. Cause I know, you know, we're here to help anybody everywhere. You know, we can help anyone in, in all 50 States. Fantastic. All right. Well, Eric, I just want to say thank you so much for, like I say this to so many of the guests, firstly, for just telling the story, because I know that reliving some of these, you know, mental movie images that are playing in your head, you know, it takes its toll and it's not comfortable, but you know, allowing these stories to be heard or reheard. And I think in this case, heard for the first time, probably certainly with me, with, with the mass evacuation that you guys did. Um, you know, I, I think these stories do need to be told, but I understand the kind of impact of that. So thank you so much for, for being so courageous and telling your story. Well, thank you. I want to thank you for having me on. I've, I've been honored and I, I want to thank you for, for our friendship. And um, it, it's, it's been absolutely awesome to be able to, to let people know history because I love history and history needs to be told truthfully and, 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 and not forgotten.